What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Boland. Scott, we have sort of a racing episode today. Yeah, we do. No, this is, this is, I'll, I'll say this is a racing episode. This why is a not? legit racing episode? Uh, why not? Why not? <laughs> We're going to go back to our uh, Automotive Mysteries, Myths, Rumors, Revealed uh, book that, you know, we had mentioned, in the, I think it was rare recently we had yeah, an episode yeah. about that. And, um... We've got another legend that I think uh, I think people might be interested in. You know, if, is it true or is it is it false? And uh, yes, I know this one really is captured my attention immediately when I opened the uh, the table of contents. And it's about um, there. Well, there's a legend that a monkey named Jocko Flacco won as many NASCAR Grand National races as Mario Andretti, Buddy Schumann, and Mark Donahue. And I know a lot of people right now are saying. Come on, guys. No way. But let's be specific. It was a rhesus monkey, and they're pretty good at driving. <laughs> <laughs> not, not bad. Not a bad way to say it. And, you know, you got to remember, Mario Andretti, Buddy Schumann, and Mark Donahue um, have won one Grand National race. Is that right? Yeah. So that that's – I guess that could be true, right? I mean, let's th- – this story, it begs us to, to dig a little further, right? I mean, we should we should explain – what we're talking about here, because I think a lot of people are going to say that there was a uh, – I don't get it. There's a monkey driving a NASCAR race car? Right. How, and, he's, and he won a race? Yeah. How, how does that all work? It's weird. Uh, so maybe one of the first things we should talk about when we explain this is the time period, right, man? Oh, definitely, yeah, because you know we, we have to go way, way back in NASCAR history because – um, as you know, it was much, much different when it was founded back in like the 1948. Yeah, 48. Bill France, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, the France family that still owns NASCAR, and um, it was much, much different then than it was now. A lot more, I guess you could say, a lot more was able to, to fly at that point. Yeah, the, it wasn't quite as formalized, yeah. and that's an understatement. It yeah. was nowhere near as formalized. Now, 
Ben, I've got an opinion about this now. NASCAR, to me, now there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in NASCAR, and it seems like there's always, you know, fighting going on. There's drama. It's almost like sure. it, it's like a weekly soap opera at some points, really, with with all the the drama and activity that happens, you know, surrounding the race and the race itself, and and the debatable gray areas of getting around okay. regulations. But but I do want to say that it's also. Ex- Extremely, extremely regimented in in the rules. In that you know, there's there's rules about everything in NASCAR today. Yes. And back then, in the 1940s, 1950s, mm-hmm. those rules didn't exist. But now, I mean, they've got rules about fighting. They got yes. rules about if you if you say something bad about a sponsor in a press interview, mm-hmm. uh, you get fined for that. Um, they have rules about the way the the uh, the pit crew stands at attention during the national anthem. Yes. Yeah, so um, what what we're saying is that. The rules for NASCAR, modern NASCAR, do not just apply to the vehicle. They apply to everything you could imagine about the vehicles, the crews, the uh, just the staff at yeah. the venues. Yeah, and it's not it's not necessarily bad thing. You know that, that they've got you know this idea, this standard that they want to uphold, and they want to have you know a certain image, and mm-hmm. they try very hard to, to maintain that image. And you know, there's these uh, these these I guess these occurrences, these happenings that go on outside that, you know, some people, some people say that maybe some of that's a put on. Some of that's like for additional publicity. Oh, like wrestling or rappers? uh, Yeah, I kind of like that. You know, and some people have gone so far as to say that that race outcomes are decided like that. And I'm not going to point any fingers or say anything, but. They say that it's almost a scripted event completely from start to finish. Oh, Scott, you're verging uh, on conspiracy. I don't uh, I don't buy into it myself personally, the race. Bit. I don't either. But I do know that they're very controlling as far as you know what they allow uh, in the cars, what they allow around the cars, the shapes of the cars themselves, right. the way the crew behaves when they're outside of a venue, the way the crew behaves inside the venue. You know, it's just very, very regimented, very, very strict. And uh, that was not the case uh, back, if you, if you want to go back to, let's just say, oh, I don't know, how about the early 1950s? Excellent choice, sir. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, the, when you say the early 1950s, uh, that reminds me of a driver that we should talk about. Okay, who is that? Uh, act surprised, <laughs> Julius Timothy Flock, better known as Tim. Yeah, and his brothers, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, of the Flock Bros. Yeah, Bob and Fonty mm-hmm. were uh, were his other brothers, and they also had a sister named Ethel, who uh, who also competed. She raced in something like a, more than a hundred races in her day as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so these guys, these were well, Bob and Fonty, anyways, mm-hmm. they were moonshine runners, which fit the uh, the NASCAR demographic of the day. Right to a T, right? Because we've talked yeah. about that. That's what I was th- – you know what? Just a quick sidebar. Yeah. I promise I won't do a lot of sidebars in this episode. Okay. Me but either. when I'm talking to people about NASCAR, and you know sometimes there are people who will be a little bit – I don't want to say stuck up, but I'm going to say stuck up okay. about it, you know? Mm-hmm. That, oh, why would – they're racing in a circle or whatever. Those people – and I'm glad they have their opinions, but they need to do their research because they don't understand how cool and kind of outlaw uh, NASCAR was in the very beginning. So when we say these are moonshine runners, for anybody who wants to hear the full story, please do check out our earlier podcast on the origins of NASCAR. You know, I totally agree with you. There's there's some people that are a little bit irreverent about it, and you say, you know, 
where did this series come from? These were daredevils. These were moonshiners. These were guys that had some serious driving skills, and they had honed them in these, uh, you know, in, in the woods and the hollers, you know, in mm. in, uh, in the south, yeah. running from the law in these amazing hot rod vehicles that were really, really heavily modified uh, to hold all that moonshine weight and, mm. and all the extra, you know, well, just the, the baggage that goes along with that. I mean, you know, the the, uh, the the fear of going to jail for the rest of your life or, or for a long period of time, probably, um, that's what kept them driving fast. And that's what made <laughs> them the champions that they were, right? And so, oh, what it, oh, just it was just an interesting series right from the beginning. And one more thing uh, before I end my rant and get off the soapbox, a lot of the safety equipment that keeps people alive today, non-racers alive today in traffic, came directly from racing. Yeah, that's right, and a lot of it from NASCAR racing. So you know, there's a there's a, a good bit of this that uh, that is uh, it's relevant to us even now. Yes, I, okay. I apologize. I'm right. stepping off my seat. All right, box. so let's. Uh, so we're talking Flock about brothers. the uh, the Flock Brothers. We're talking about Bob Fonte and, of course, Tim and their mm-hmm. sister Ethel. Yep. Now the Fonte brother. Now Bob and Fonte, um, they were moonshine runners for their uh, the guy that they called their uncle. I don't know if it truly was their uncle or not, but the guy's <laughs> name was Peachtree Williams, and uh, he was an Atlanta corn liquor tycoon. Tycoon. So you knew that he. Uh, Ah, he was one of the guys that we were just mentioning right there, right? Yeah, the, uh, based on his job description, yeah. he's my favorite person in this story. <laughs> the favorite character in the whole thing for you, huh? Corn liquor tycoon? Corn liquor tycoon, yeah. Put that on my business That's card. not bad. So, anyways, Fonte was a very good driver, I guess. Fonte was probably the best of, of all of them, as, as a matter of fact, right when they first started. Yes. And in fact, he won a NASCAR cha- – well, actually, I should say pre-NASCAR championship mm-hmm. uh, before the series formed. Um, and then in 1951 – he was he placed second in the Grand National Title Hunt, so he was uh, he was really talented. Fonte was, um, but out of all three of them, Tim Flock actually became the most successful yes. um, overall. You know, after after all this plays out, as you'll hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Tim Flock won. Uh, he's a two time NASCAR Grand National Champion winner. That's uh, fifty two and fifty five. Uh, forty over the course of his career, forty Grand National wins. Uh, 38 Grand National Poles. He is the only driver to win in every NASCAR division on Daytona Beach. So, ah, no, you know what? You just said on Daytona Beach. <laughs> yes, I that's, did. That's interesting because we're talking about the sand course. Yes. Right? This is yep. when they raced on the beach. So mm-hmm. he won in every single series on the sand in those giant cars. Can you imagine that? Yep. That's a talented driver. I mean, this guy is the business now, when it comes to racing. Okay, so you mentioned 1952 championship, 1955 uh, championship. Yeah. Okay, there was a period of time in between. Actually, you got to go back to the beginning, just be, just a year before that to start it. But the the interesting part that we're going to get to happens in 1953. So yes. that's just a little sneak of what's happening. But now Tim himself, he was not a mechanical person. He was, and he's really, really poor. So. As were a lot of the the early NASCAR drivers, they were just looking for a ride, right? Absolutely. So they're shopping around for somebody that can provide a race car for them to drive in these NASCAR events. And that, to some extent, that still happens today. There are drivers out there that are looking for a ride even now Well, let's call it an early form of sponsorship. Yeah, sure. That's what it was. It was uh, very early because um, Ted – I'm sorry, not Ted. Tim came across – 
Ted Chester, Chester, yes. who was an Atlanta car dealer, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess he was a big race fan and a big, you know, early days of NASCAR fan, stock car fan. Yeah. And uh, the two became friends kind of quickly. And Chester, you know, said, "Well, this is going to work out perfect for me because I can sponsor a car. I can give you a ride. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, put my name all over it and uh, go out there and do your thing." Because people come to Ted Chester's auto. Yeah, exactly. I know you've got automotive. talent, so so let's let's see it. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And he bought him a uh, an old '88 that they called uh, the Black Phantom. Yes. And uh, well, Bob's brother, by the way, um, or his brother. I'm sorry, Tim's. Boy, I'm Tim's brother Bob. Tim's brother Bob. His car was named the Gray Ghost, so it was kind of like you know the Gray Ghost and the Black Phantom, the two brothers racing, you know, different teams. But, um, anyways, Ted Chester and this old '88 and the Black Phantom and, and mm. Tim Flock, you know, they're all one there um, for the 1951 season. And actually, it was a pretty successful season for him. I mean, he mm-hmm. he won seven races that year, yep. and he came in third in the championship. Um, and his brother Fonty, by the way, who was still racing, uh, came in second in the championship that year. So this is like the uh, the era of the Flock brothers, right? Right. Uh, now, of course, uh, this wasn't the best year um, for the youngest Flock brother in '53. No, no, and, not at all. And uh, Ted Chester, what what I like about his his jib, the cut of his jib here, is that. Ted Chester is a man with vision, you know. Yeah, he did. He had he had great vision. That's right. And uh, you know, this is uh, this is after they they did have another season in between where mm-hmm. Tim also won eight races in a Hudson Hornet. Yes. that they had sold that uh, that old eighty eight for. So oh, and and the Grand National title in fifty two. Mm-hmm. So by the time we get to fifty three, and you mentioned that that Ted, he's this uh, this visionary. He's got a uh, he's got a he's got a plan. He's got to figure out a way to uh, to gin up some excitement because. The start of the '53 season was not great for for Tim, and yeah. uh, you know he had some some kind of low ranking starts there at the beginning. Yeah, and um, I don't even know if he may, may have not have finished a couple races, but um, anyways, this this Atlanta car dealer, this this Chester mm-hmm. guy, he's he's quite a showman, right? And he's saying uh, because you know he's a salesman, he's a showman, so he knows that one of the biggest things uh, you need when you want popularity is to have. Um, something different, something unique, yeah, something you need, unorthodox. You need a gimmick. You right? need a shtick. A, a gimmick. And, and yeah. so he's, he's wandering around. This, this is such a strange story. He's wandering around in Atlanta. He's just in downtown Atlanta. Yeah, this guy's yeah. wandering around. He goes into a pet shop. Uh huh. And he sees a, uh, you mentioned it, a rhesus monkey. And yep. this rhesus monkey is in a cage. And, and the cage says that, um, his name on the cage, it says that this monkey's name is Jocko. And then Ch- Ted Chester, for some reason, has this moment of clarity, this epiphany, where he thinks, I'll name the monkey Jocko Flacco, and I'll give it to, to Tim, and he'll race with it. This is so crazy. <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is a truly crazy thought. He's like mumbling the name of the monkey. He's like, uh, Jocko, 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 Jocko. What's that rhyme with Flock? Jocko, Jocko, Jocko Flacco. Jocko Flacco. Jocko Flacco. That's it. I'm going to go with Jocko Flacco, <laughs> and he's going to race with my NASCAR driver. He's going to uh, ride Jocko. He's going to be his co-driver. How cool is that going to be, right? Yeah. And uh, and and. He says, "That's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it." And he, so he buys the monkey right on on the scene. He buys it right then at that moment. Shows up to uh, Ted Flock's house. Yeah, he goes. Well, he actually goes to the. I think he went to the garage. Or, it, like yeah, the yeah. Car, the car the was garage. being. Yeah, the car the was being right. worked on in some in some garage somewhere in Atlanta. Yeah, and he goes there and he and he springs this idea on him right in front of the mechanic. Yeah, 
Ted, uh, I'm sorry, Tim is not a fan initially. No, no. He thinks he thinks that Ted is drunk. Uh, you know what? I I probably would have thought the same thing. I, I think I would have. I mean, what, what are you talking about? You're going to have a monkey race in my car with me? Is he going to you know, he's going to actually drive for a stint or what? But let's not forget again that uh, Ted Chester is a salesman, so he manages to sell Tim Flock on the idea. And so the more they talk about it, and the more Tim thinks about it. The more he's thinking, yeah, okay. Okay, okay. Th- there's a little bit of insight on this. Oh, now, you got now, some insider Tim, now, info? Now, now, the reason, not not really. It's from the article here, so yeah, it's yeah. not it's not terribly new info to you. But um, Tim Flock, he was kind of he, he went with this for this one, maybe for this reason because I guess his family has kind of a history of of oh, this yeah. kind of crazy, you know, like uh, self promotion idea. Um, it turns out that one of his older sisters was in an air show as a wing walker and a stunt parachuter. Now that's kind of strange. I mean, for a female to be doing that, especially in the that early age. in the early nineteen four or fifties, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fonty, uh, <laughs> I love this description. Fonty, who they called a debonair raconteur. Uh, sometimes raced in shorts and was the greatest showman of his era. So he's he's in a NASCAR race racing in shorts. Uh, Can you uh, believe that? A raconteur, by the way, is a uh, another word essentially for storyteller. Yeah, yeah, he's like a, a a grand storyteller. He's very debonair in that he uh, you know he could persuade people easily, and that you know this is silver tongue. So so for Tim to say, you know what. You know what, I, Chester? I, I I say we go with it. Let's let's do this and see what happens. And the idea is that they know that NASCAR probably won't allow this to happen. You know, the France family, they've already got like a, a pretty tight grip on the series, and they've got mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and I guess Flock and France had had some kind of words about some other issues in the past, and you right. know, so well, they weren't on great terms to begin with. Um, and I can imagine that you know, Bill France or France would have said. I don't know if this is really going to be the best for NASCAR's new image at the time. You know, that's absolutely what they said because they want to get they they're building their rep yeah. at this era. You know, so they want to they don't want to this to be something where it turns into a race where like every driver has their little animal sidekick. Yeah. Of course, they would say no, and that's why these men realize that this is a situation where perhaps it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than. To ask for permission. That's right, and you know what? My whole life is based on this, uh, this, I guess, this aspect of, of of life that you ask for forgiveness rather than permission. I, I do I do this often. Are you serious? Yeah, I really do. I, I have in the past. I'm not so much now. I'm a little more settled down now. But <laughs> hey, you know what? One quick sidebar. Yeah. I, maybe this is the last one. Maybe. Okay. But um, do you recall? You now we, we talked about. Um, Donald Campbell recently, and uh, he had Mr. Wapit that he that rode with him as his yes, co-pilot, right? Yep. And that was a little bear, a little mm-hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't a real bear, but it was a it, it was a bear. stuffed animal. Do you remember way way back when we talked about race cars in 2025? Yes. Okay, there was a, an entry from BMW where they uh, one of the I guess the BMW entry they decided that the co-pilot for their entry was going to be a goldfish. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. 
because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Do you remember that? <laughs> and not that it's going to do anything. I do remember that. But the goldfish was part of the design of the vehicle. And that was I, one of our very first podcasts. Anyways, I'm, I'm drawing some kind of... Uh, Parallels. Uh, yeah, some type of parallel here, but okay. Yeah, yeah, so it's not going to fly. Back to 1953. Jocko Flacco, they know the Franz family is not going to give them they, permission. They didn't even ask. So they didn't ask. Didn't even ask. So what they did was they just said, okay, start building a special monkey-proof seat. <laughs> I mean, essentially, that's what they said. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, and uh, start, start building that and uh, make sure that the monkey is not going to get in trouble, and then we'll wait until – Moments before the race begins, mm-hmm. and we'll bring Jocko out. So uh, they managed to successfully install the seat for Jocko on the passenger side, and they make sure that it's high enough that Jocko can see and be seen. Yeah, that's in the, the window. That's the key part here. That's the important part. And there's a little bit of dispute as to whether this was an actual seat or if it was a perch, right, or if it was a cage. Because uh, there's you a few hear di- all three. There's three different versions of this, and, mm-hmm. and I, I, I would like to believe. I, I want Ben. I want so badly to believe that he had a little, uh, little racing seat that he sat in. I don't know why. I just think it's a better image. Yeah, it is a better image. I don't know if it's the most plausible. No, probably not. But he did have a racing uniform. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention that part because <laughs> he did. Because uh, <laughs> while they're putting a Reese's monkey. Which, you know, they're, they're smaller animals. <laughs> While they're putting this, uh, specially designed seat in and uh, while they're really going to race with this with this primate, they decide that safety is an issue. Ugh. So they give it a racing uniform and a little monkey helmet. See, more promotion. <laughs> That's what this is. Yeah. So, okay, one other interesting little fact here is that uh, the, the debut of Jocko Flacco was, in, was at Charlotte Speedway. Yep. Not This is not the current 
Motor, uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway that's in Concord. Uh, in fact, that, that, uh, the current Motor Speedway was built sometime later, uh, by Curtis Turner, who was the guy that we talked about in, uh, one of our Audible, uh, right. moments or mentions, I guess, uh, the guy that drove for Smokey, Smokey Eunuch, mm-hmm. um, in that crazy small Chevelle. Yes. So anyways, okay, there's a lot of tie-ins in this series here. So um okay, so so it's a it's a 150 lap race, the very first race there in Charlotte. And uh Tim Flock is in the lead 7 times, 87 laps. Uh he loses power partway through the race uh so that the win goes to uh the driver Dick Passwater and Flock manages to finish 4th. Now, at that point in that race, he gets about 350 bucks for finishing un- fourth. That's an unfortunate name for another driver. Dick Passwater is... Yeah, yeah. I know. And, you know, Ben, I... I, mean, I call I've yourself re- Richard, buddy. I've, re- I've re- you know, re- <laughs> I return back to a seven-year-old's uh, mentality here, but I know, but it, it makes me laugh every time I hear it. Okay, so yeah. he finished fourth that day, right? And uh, right. so it wasn't... It, this maiden voyage of, of Jacko Flacco wasn't a success for Tim as a driver. But as a brand... Ah, uh, Yes. He, yeah. uh, as a, as a brand, people in the stands and of course other people, other drivers notice that he's not alone in the vehicle. During the race. Right. And it freaks them out. They almost, he said they almost hit the guardrails and when they mm-hmm. saw it and they spotted it, cause you know, no one had any idea that he was going to do this other than his own team and his family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the surprise of seeing a, a Reese's monkey in a racing suit in the car next to you as you're driving at, you know, a hundred plus miles an hour. That's got to be kind of shocking. And the fans go wild after the yeah. race. So picture, if you will, yeah. the uh, first, second, and third place drivers <laughs> watching. All of the fans run to see this guy's monkey. Yeah. Uh, so he becomes this uh, he becomes this overnight NASCAR star. He's so, a media sensation, a, uh, a fan sensation. Right. So what does the Franz family do? They then? decide that they're going to allow it. They yeah. say they say like this is. You know what? That's fine. If you want to do this because it's bringing people in. It's the it's the major draw for the mm-hmm. 1953 season. Yeah. Is Jaco Flacco? And this is crazy. I mean because. Come on, he's got a live monkey in the seat next to him when he's right, trying to focus on what he's doing. I mean, he's a professional driver. And the 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 excuse me, the calculation that NASCAR has here is pretty good, pretty smart, I think. It was spot on. Because they said, "Okay, now let's keep let's keep in mind that this is um this is in the earlier days, so the Grand National Tour is nowhere near as established. Uh, so it's good for publicity. It also sells tickets. That's right. And he's the only one to do it. It's not like anybody else, you know, copied him and did the same thing. Um, but, you know, they actually went as far as, as to, uh, um, you know, label the car with Jocko Flacco over top of the, uh, the, uh-huh. dri- the driver's door, or sorry, the passenger's door, because that was his seat, you know. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was a big deal at the time. And kids would, you know, that, They'd take the the monkey up into the uh, the the stand area, and the kids would feed it peanuts in between uh-huh. races, and it was just uh, it was kind of a neat thing that you know that happened from this. It it all spawned this uh, this this Jocko Flacco mania, I guess, in yeah. that one year in that series. It was really kind of neat. And anecdotal evidence indicates that uh, Jocko was leading a pretty good life. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't he wasn't mistreated. Uh, I think it's important to note that, of course. You know, riding shotgun in a race car is not a rhesus monkey's natural environment, no. sure. And that does come into play later. But uh, I think it's very important here to note that um, the that Jocko Flacco also lived 
with his driver. Right? Yeah, he lived with Tim Flock and his family and in his kids in Atlanta. Yeah, and had a uh, you know in a comfortable home in the backyard. That's where he lived in a mm-hmm. cage or something. You know, mm-hmm. whatever setup they had for him there. He played with the kids on the swing set. Yeah, so he wasn't abused. They he would, wasn't they'd like take him locked on, away. No, they would take him on walks with you know mm-hmm. like with a leash, and it was uh, it was like a family pet. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he just happened to race with Dad in NASCAR on the weekend. That's all. Yeah, and he raced uh, more than once. He had oh a, many times. Yeah. yeah, he had many races. Um, probably what's remembered as the one of the high points of his career, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, May sixteenth, nineteen fifty three. Ah, yes, I've got a May fifteenth, but May sixteenth may have been the date. Mm-hmm. It was uh, mid May, anyways. Let's say mid May because I'm not sure on the exact okay. date of the race, but mid May, nineteen fifty three. That was the big day. That was the that was the win, right? That's what he, uh, he actually, this is the day that Tim Flock won, um, it was at, uh, where was it? It was at a Hickory Speedway. Hickory Speedway. That was in North Carolina. Uh-huh. And, uh, it was just, a, it, was a, it was pretty tremendous. I mean, cause there's Jocko Flocko in the winner's circle with Tim Flock. Mm, and of course, national. you know, Tim thought, well, this is my luck turning around. You know, he's, pro- I mean, I guess superstitious. Who knows? Yeah. Most drivers really are. Sure. Um, but anyways, it was a it was a big deal for for them to the two of them to be in winner's circle together, and that's where we get this uh, this legend that we're talking about. Because mm-hmm. and if you if you carefully listen to what we said, um, <laughs> he won as many NASCAR Grand National races as Mario Andretti, Buddy Schumann, and Mark Donahue, all of whom won one exactly one race. So he is he's tied their record in a way as a co-driver. I guess. Yeah, we're parsing this. We're parsing this pretty quick. Uh, I mean, pretty thoroughly. But the devil is in the detail here. The good news is that Flock and Jocko, Flock and Flocko rather, which I think would make a great buddy cop movie. <laughs> uh, they they get uh, a cool grand. For their winnings. Oh, great! Yeah, that's uh, so. That gives you an idea of the uh, the prize money of the day compared to the million dollar payouts right. right now. Flacco so, gets uh, Flacco gets peanuts. <laughs> yeah, and as he said, uh, you know that monkey got the best of bananas at home too. So, um, you know, he said that he was very well taken care of, and uh, and I'm sure after the win, there was a little something extra in his bowl for that. I'm sure. So, and okay. now. Uh, it was a little bit downhill after that, right? Yeah, because, can we um, have some downhill music? Like <laughs> the story's taking a turn. Yeah, it is. It's taking a turn, but you know, something like this is bound to happen, and it's probably not going to end. When I say this, you're not going to you're not going to understand what exactly happened. I mean, there's a twist to it. Sure. Um, there was a disaster that happened um, at Rally Speedway in North Carolina mm-hmm. shortly after that. So um, this was in 1953. Um, also, so, you know, the entire year wasn't a good year for the two of them. Right. Um, let's see, there were, uh, and as a matter of fact, you know, just to give you an idea of how early on in this series this was. Yeah. This was, uh, the Rally Speedway track in North Carolina was one of only two paved NASCAR tracks of that era in the Grand National Circuit. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, just Raleigh and, uh, Darlington. Oh, okay, good. Okay, so you knew the other one. The, uh, um, the, and the other thing is that it was a 300 mile race that happened on that day in Rally. And uh, it took about four hours to complete that thing. And I looked up the the uh, the time to complete the 2013 Daytona 500. Yeah. So 200 additional miles, mm-hmm. um, different type of track, I guess. But it takes them about three hours and ten minutes now to finish the same, or actually a longer race. So you know the speeds are not quite what they were now, but they're mm-hmm. still. I'll tell you that's still pretty wickedly fast for those kinds of kinds of vehicles back then. Heck yes, and it becomes a it. Could, it's fast enough where it might be a safety issue to have an animal in the vehicle with uh, yeah, you. A huge safety issue. So there's this this whole, I, I guess, 
a series of events that happens on the day of this of this tragedy. Right, and it's it, Memorial Day weekend. And I said it's not exactly what you might think because um, we mentioned that it's a long race, right? Yeah. And it gave Jocko plenty of time to, uh, quote, get loose in the cockpit mm-hmm. uh, sometime within that four hours. Now, can you imagine that, first of all? You know, he's secured for most of the time. Right. You know, waving to the fans, waving to the uh, you know other people. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. He waved to everybody. Um, he got loose. He he must have monkeyed around, monkeyed around. He must have <laughs> monkeyed around with the the uh, the buckles on his seat or whatever, and found yeah. a way to get loose, right? And so, this has already become this is already a dangerous situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, to add to the danger, uh, Tim Flock had cut a trap door in the floorboard of the vehicle. Yeah, which can I mention? Yeah, was common. For that time period, that, that's something that I heard Richard Petty had done. Also, you mm-hmm. know, other drivers of that day had done it, or not Richard. Maybe it was uh, his father. Um, but anyways, the, um, it was common to do that, and they put like a flap of uh, maybe carpet over it, right? And you would pull a string, and it would lift the flap, so you could check on the tire. Yeah, the right front tire, because yeah. that's the one that's getting. If you're if you're making left hand turns all day long, that's the one that's getting punished. The right front tire is the one that's going to go first on those cars. So they were constantly monitoring that tire, and the only way to do it was to cut that hole in there, the access hole, pull this flap, be able to just kind of tilt their head over and look at it, and then let the flap go, and uh, they're back to racing. And now we are going to dive briefly into. Uh, just just some biology about primates, about monkeys. Okay. Monkeys are intelligent, uh, frighteningly intelligent in comparison to many other animals. Mm-hmm. So monkeys will have the ability to observe and imitate actions. So that's why it's uh, that's why you'll see trained monkeys. Now we're not saying it's ethical, of course, but we're saying that uh, it's important to know that. Monkeys and apes have this ability. Yeah, sure. To mimic somebody is often called uh, to ape the imita- the the uh, the action, right? Yes, exactly. And uh, during their, uh, they had a total of eight races, I think, Flock and Flocko. I think so. Uh, during their previous seven races, um, Jocko had observed Flock's racing motions. So he had seen him, you know, steering. He had seen him shifting. He had seen him occasionally pulling the string of the chain to open the flap. Of the floorboard, yeah. Uh, so they get, and now that he was free, uh, he started doing some of those things. Oh boy! And uh, he pulled the chain, the flap went open, and a rock—the way the story goes, at least—a rock popped up from the floorboard, and boom! Smacks Jocko Flacco. Yep, right between the eyes. Yes, wearing his uh, monkey face. And the 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 horrible thing about this is now I'm sure that a lot of people thought we were going to mention that there was a wreck here, right? The horrible thing about this is that he just started. I mean, it it obviously injured him. He's screaming, you know, like his, you know, just screeching. I guess is a better way to say it. Loses his mind, goes nuts inside the cabin. Now, can you imagine all this is going on during the middle of the race, running in a blind? Painful rage around exactly, the, yeah. the oh man. I mean they're 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 like, you know, topping a hundred miles an hour. Um, you know, he's trying not to lose control, but um he, he's 
you know, darn near having that happen. And people see this happening. They see right. what's going on inside because they can, they can see that something's not right and that the monkey is acting completely different than it did, you know, the last time around when it was waving and mm-hmm. smiling. So Tim wanted to kill that monkey, says West Coast stock car ace Herschel McGriff. It was running around the bench seat of that Hudson, climbing over the steering wheel. Um, and then here comes our old buddy Richard Passwater, who'd won the race at Charlotte. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Earlier, uh, he got a closer look at the shenanigans because he's also racing in this. I was behind Tim when old Jocko got loose, says Passwater. I could see the monkey running around like crazy. That monkey was wild. At one point, he jumped on Tim's back. It looked like old Jocko was going to choke him. Oh, what? This is crazy. I cannot imagine. This becomes a different sport. Uh, it's totally different. I mean, point. I don't know how he managed to keep the car on the track at that point. I don't, I just don't understand it at all right I mean, and these were you know these are the era of nascar we're, we're talking about these cars are already fairly difficult to control they're a bit unwieldy i yeah. mean they're they're huge cars they handle really well of course mm-hmm. for, for their size and for you know the make and model they are but still you got to imagine they, those things are like two tons two and a half tons of car and they're not they're not designed the way that cars are now they don't handle quite as crisp right. um there's a lot of different circumstances that that would lead me to believe that i i mean honestly i just don't know how tim was able to keep the car on the track so here's this this kind of this is a funny little little line that's often quoted um <laughs> you know he re, he says he reached up with his his left hand and he kept his eyes on the track and the race, and he got the he got the, grabbed the monkey by the neck just to slow him down. And he said he he slowed down as he went into the turn into turn four down into pit road. And of course, there's no yellow flag or anything right. going on, so he's he's making just an unscheduled pit stop. Right? Yeah. He goes down into pit road, holds the monkey out the window. The mechanic grabs him, and you know, not knowing what's going on, because yeah. I'm sure communication wasn't anything like what it is now. He's like, "What's this?" You know, so he hands him out to him, mm-hmm. uh, and it says that it was the only time. Known in history, in NASCAR history, that an official pit stop was made for a monkey to be put out of the car. Yeah. And you see that often in, in here and there, you know, that that's like the way that people draw you into the story, you know, like the, right. an, an official pit stop to uh, to hand a monkey out of the window. Um, funny to say, to say the least, but, you know, it ends up it ends up costing him first place. Um, yeah, well, it cost him. Yeah. Cost him second place, I believe, and because uh, he would have been, he would have been in oh, second place right, for the race, right, right. and uh, it cost him about six hundred bucks in his paycheck that day. And uh, the end result, I guess, Ben, is that Jocko was immediately retired after that race. They said, you know, th- th- we can't do this anymore. Thus endeth Jocko Flacco's brief but bright career as the only non-human finger quotes. Race car driver. Yeah, that's right. And it was his last public appearance, really, because um, it, according to Tim, uh, this is this is where the story goes two different ways. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. now the verdict. Now let's just get the verdict out of the way on this. On the legend. So the verdict was that you know he, this this uh, this is NASCAR's uh, winning monkey. We've we mentioned this that he's mm-hmm. already won as many titles, etc. Right. Uh, the verdict is absolutely true. Of course, it happened. It really did happen. You could see lots of photos of, of Jocko Flacco and Tim Flock together. Mm, he was in the car, at least, when Flock, Flock won. Yeah, he was a co-driver, I guess you could say. like Much like the Goldfish would be the co-driver in the uh, in the BMW entry. All right, that's generous. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll go with you. Uh, much like uh, Mr. Wappet was uh, Donald Campbell's co-driver. Objection, Mr. Wappet was not living. Okay. All right, but whatever. Okay, so okay. so it's, it's true in a cute way. Here's where it branches out, right? Yes. What did uh, what did Tim Flock say uh, happened to Jocko at the end of his uh, his racing career? Well, Tim Flock said that at the end of the racing career, he said I had to 
I had to retire Flacco. I couldn't teach him to sign his autograph, mm-hmm. so I had to get rid of him. <laughs> and that's a very nice tale. That's that's very diplomatic mm-hmm. and uh, and something nice to say to kids. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and then according to uh, Tim Flock, uh, Jocko retired and just lived with the family and yeah. didn't have to go in the races. Yeah, anymore. it's a, he said he lived a life of leisure at, after that point. You know, this is him being interviewed later that you know it was yeah. a, it was a life of leisure. He just retired to the home with the family and everything was just great, right? That's the story I want to believe. Ah, uh, that's a nice story. That's a nice ending. However. Later, when they talked to uh, Tim's widow, because this is many years later, right? Um, Tim passed away. Uh, Tim's widow, Francis yeah. uh, Flock. Uh, Tim passed away in 1998. Okay, 1998. So it's some time later, a long time later. But according to Tim's widow, I remember the uh, the, the the blow that he suffered in the in the vehicle there, right? right? The, the rock the, that the, hit him, the rock right into the head. Um, she said that apparently Jacko had suffered some sort of brain injury from that from that accident and never quite. Re- you know, recovered after that. He was listless. Yeah, he didn't eat or anything like that. They took him to the vet because they were trying. You know, it's the family pet. They're mm-hmm. trying to take care of this this animal. They take him to the vet. The vet says, uh, you know, it doesn't look good for Jacko. I think that the best thing to do at this point, you know, because quality of life uh, would be just to have him put down, and that's what they did, according to his widow. So that's so an unhappy ending. Yeah, uh, short. You know, versions. it's an it's an abrupt ending, I guess, to the uh, to the. To the life of Jocko Flacco, but um, like you said, I, I would prefer to uh, I'd prefer Tim's version of this that he just retired a life of leisure and lived out the rest of his days in the backyard of some Atlanta home. And even again, with such incredibly intelligent creatures, um, they are fully capable of having depression. Oh, it doesn't sure. necessarily indicate brain damage. I think there are questions that still remain about the. Um, about the story of Jocko Flacco, mm-hmm. but we have verified that this legend is true with an asterisk, I'm going to say. Asterisk. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to say it. That, you know, he's a co-driver, didn't really, you know, handle the wheel other than maybe inadvertently when he went that nuts. That one time. <laughs> when, he went, when he went nuts, um, you know, after being struck by the rock, I think mm-hmm. I would have gone crazy too. But, um, yeah, I, I guess that's probably the best way to put it is that it's, uh, it's true with an asterisk. The moral of our story today, ladies and gentlemen, is that one should not race with monkeys. You can hang out with them. You can have, you know, you can have wonderful times, but maybe you shouldn't compete in NASCAR. That is sage advice, Ben. Thank you. One I... should not race with monkeys. <laughs> it's classy because we said one instead of you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think so. You know, and just to just to kind of put a cap on this. Yeah. Um, Tim was actually he's a very successful driver. Actually, his career. Ended when, uh, when, this is not good, I guess. His career ended prematurely when he and, uh, Curtis Turner, who I mentioned earlier, that was, uh, right. I wanted to mention his name, uh, they were blackballed by the Bill France family, uh, from all of NASCAR competition, uh, for trying to start a driver's union. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that was the end of, of Curtis Turner and of, um, Tim Flock. Um, so it wasn't anything terribly tragic that happened on, on the course or anything or anything. They were just fighting the man. Exactly. And, uh, you know, one thing is that according to this article, and I'll have to dig into the, uh, the NASCAR records, but it looks like Tim Flock won 40 of 189 races, which is even now a record for a winning percentage, uh, that, that even today, you know, it remains unmatched. It says that, um, you know, out of the, well, to win 40 out of 189, that's an incredible percentage. 
That is an incredible That's way high. I mean, it's almost like, you know, when, when someone has like one of these, uh, now he had a long career. He raced years and years and years, but it's almost like, you know, in, in baseball or something, Mm -hmm. when someone bats one time, you know, they get a base (laughs) hit or something, you know, it's like they're batting a thousand. It's like, well, you, you know, Here's a rookie that's batting a thousand. Well, they've only been to bat once. Yeah, percentage and ratio; those can be tricky records. Yeah, exactly. So it's like if you had a short career and this was like a, you know, like you won one out of two races that you competed in, that would be something different. But out of 189 races to win 40, yeah, that's pretty amazing. That's a good. That's a good record. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time in range and lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. And uh, while we've got everybody's attention still, if you wrote a email to us, an email, oh my gosh, excuse me, then uh, please get excited because we're going to do some listener mail. Is it yours? <laughs> Great. All right, Scott. Um, here we go. Corey writes in to us and says, Hey guys, long-time listener, first-time writer. I listen to your podcast about out-of-control vehicles. I've got a story for you. And he sent us this photograph that I'm oh, handing you now. Oh, I remember this now. So Corey says, I have a 67 Camaro project car that I've been messing with for 20-odd years. One day I was driving down a side street and the steering wheel came off in my hands. I was doing about 25 MPH. I have to say I drew a complete blank on what to do. 
I can't blame him. You know, we didn't talk about what to do if your steering wheel falls off. That's completely out of control. I agree. Yeah. I knew that my car brakes to the right, so I waited until my right side was clear and then braked hard to steer between parked cars. By the time I stopped, I was on the other side of the sidewalk and completely in someone's yard, missing a tree by about two feet. Okay. There was no damage to the car. And that's lucky because that's a handsome vehicle. And all I needed to fix was a sprinkler head in the person's yard. Basically, I was completely lucky that there was a large enough gap between parked cars and no one on the sidewalk. Okay, two things, Ben. Two things. This car is beautiful, by the way. I've, yeah. I've sent a photo of it. It's it's yeah. really it's astounding. It's Great very very work, nice, Corey. beautiful work. piece of work. And uh, second, what a cool head, huh? To be able to uh, to to have a steering wheel pop off Just your so hands. And, and I could I could see that happening in an older car. This one, by the way, looks like a show car. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but to have it pop off in your hands, and then to have the 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 the, the clear head to say, yeah. my car veers to the right when I brake, so I know that I'm going to have to wait until it's clear on the right to to try to brake. Uh huh. Amazing. And to be able to do it between two parked cars and to not hit anything, that's that's a good story. Yeah. I uh, first off, Corey, I I think that I'm I'm one of those people who tends to believe that luck is a combination of preparation and uh opportunity maybe, mm-hmm. but also clarity, the mm-hmm. ability to make a clear-headed decision. Yep. Did uh, not panic. Did not panic, which is uh tremendously impressive. Uh thank you so much for writing to us, Corey. Thank you for sending such a wonderful picture of your vehicle. Um for anyone else who thinks their steering wheel might pop off mid-drive, <laughs> go ahead and figure out which side of the yeah. road your car is going to break. Take take some notes from Corey because uh, I don't I don't know if I would have such a clear head at that point. Yeah. I'd try to, but man, that's uh, that's that's a lot of focus. Yes, thank God there wasn't a monkey in yeah. the car. <laughs> yeah, that would be the only <laughs> other thing that would uh, would distract him. To, well, whatever. <laughs> and I knew my monkey would jump to the left if the car breaks to the right. Well, if we're uh, if we were just making monkey jokes at this point, we should probably head out. Um, the legend is is truish, and uh, we're so glad that uh, you guys checked out our episode. Uh, let us know what you think um, about this episode. What you think about out of control cars? Uh, let us know if there's a, another car story that you would like to hear. Yeah, maybe we should continue on with some more of these uh, these myths and legends and see where that takes. Because these are these are interesting stories to be. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's there's a wealth of information in this book. I think we should maybe uh, dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And you can. You can find us uh, on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. We set this podcast out about twice a week, but every day we're updating those with some new, interesting, weird stories. Um, and if you have a suggestion for something you'd like to hear, we're always around. Just send us an email at carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. 
Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.